This episode of The First Feature is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed believes everyone should have access to great music in their projects, regardless of their budget or workflow. That's why they just announced their all-new membership program, the first music licensing subscription of its kind, releasing this summer. Membership is here to make their world-class roster of artists and composers available for all of your projects. Membership will give you unlimited access to a majority of Musicbed's artists, all at a flat monthly or yearly rate, based on the types of films you make. And if you still want single-use licenses, they're not going anywhere. Membership is just a new option to make music licensing work better for your workflow. Be one of the first to learn more at musicbed.com membership. And don't forget, you can get 20% off your next on-site license at musicbed.com with coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Again, that's FIRSTFEATURE20. Welcome to the First Feature, a No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo, and my first feature is titled Amateur. Amateur is a Netflix film available worldwide. In this podcast, we're going through every phase of filmmaking production, and we're almost there. This is the last one. This is release and reception, and I am here again with Liz Nord from No Film School. Hello. I've released a lot of emotions during the journey of this podcast. I'm excited to be here. This is it, except the next time will be episode 10, and this is your last chance to send us questions about your own first feature at firstfeature at nofilmschool.com. And then the next episode, we will try to answer them as best we can. Or you can also ask me questions about this particular movie if I didn't answer them in the previous 10 hours (laughs) of material. So yeah, so as you said, Ryan, Amateur is out in the world. It, It when we started recording, it was just after it was released. So now you've, you know, you've had a few weeks out to sort of process all of this. But I'm sure people just want to know how you sort of got to release in terms of even the release date. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of a starting place. And I think it's very different for a lot of first features that aren't Netflix originals, because if you don't have distribution, then you are certainly probably targeting festivals, right? Because festivals are not just a great way to expose your movie. They are also, to varying degrees, depending on the festival, a marketplace and a way to put them in front of buyers and generate some buzz and hopefully a bidding war and hopefully you make your investors whole. And then after that sort of initial release, then you start talking about when to release it in the larger world. And maybe it's six months later, maybe it's a year later. Like it's a very different procedure if somebody else were recording the first feature podcast. But this is the first feature for a Netflix movie that was financed by Netflix. So it wasn't picked up by Netflix at a festival. It was always going to be a Netflix original from the beginning. And because we knew that we had a target audience in the world of basketball and because of the issues that the film engages with, we knew that we wanted to target March Madness, which is the college basket, the national college basketball tournament that happens as you can guess every March or it starts in March. So then the question was, do we want to target the beginning of the tournament or the end of the tournament? Like, you know, we don't want to put it out in the middle because then you maybe get lost and uh, one of the first questions, actually, once, once we knew that we wanted to target that, which we all agreed on, was just what else is Netflix putting out, right? Because you don't want to be coming out the same weekend as a, either a huge Netflix release or a movie that's for a similar demographic. So we, we decided on April 6th because the national championship game was played Monday, April 2nd. And then we were going to come out that Friday. So people would still be talking about basketball, but they might be having a little withdrawal and want some more basketball in there. They could get it. Right. And if you just watch this tournament happen, the movie is kind of what goes on behind closed doors. And so it was sort of like, watch the championship. And then if you want to know what really goes on, watch this movie. So that was how we decided on April 6th, which felt great, too, because the sports world is so littered with various tournaments and events, you know, in terms of what sport is in season, what's happening. I think the only thing that we felt was going on that weekend was the Masters and golf, which probably has a different demographic than this teenage basketball drama. So it, we could also just sort of identify the weekend as saying, like, we can own the weekend and the conversation around this particular area. 
And you you didn't end up playing at any festivals, and that was sort of like part of the strategy. But we get asked constantly, you know, in terms of release, like, how do you know what festival to go to? What's your festival strategy? Is there anything, just as a segue or like an aside from your film, is there anything you would recommend to people listening in terms of general festival strategy if they do want to go that route? Yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have played festivals. We talked about potentially, since we were targeting April 6th, we said, oh, uh, Tribeca's happening a couple weeks later, and Tribeca has the ESPN Sports Film Festival as part of it. Like, this is a movie made by a New Yorker with Michael Rainey Jr., who's a New Yorker, and Josh Charles, who's a prominent New Yorker. Like, I've been to basketball movies at Tribeca before. They play very well. I've actually been turned away from basketball movies because, like, Lenny Cook, the documentary about the potentially great basketball player who never made it from the Safdie brothers, actually, uh, was at Tribeca. But Netflix felt, and I agree, that the 120 million subscribers targeting it appropriately for them with the release date that would maximize the exposure there was more important than the 120 people <laughs> that would be in a theater. So so I totally understood there. Um, I think festivals, especially, again, for if your movie doesn't have distribution, it's you know the number one thing to do to try to get distribution and and you also get a lot of critical activity around the film and uh, I think in many ways the film industry has not caught up with what Netflix is doing I mean this is something you guys have talked about in Indie Film Weekly a lot with the the current discussion between can and Netflix and what can and can't play in competition and Netflix pulling their movies from there and that that sort of whole um, conflict I, I think we haven't yet figured it out in the film world yet because this movie being out there right now amateur has been seen by millions of people on rotten tomatoes and metacritic it currently has zero reviews oh my goodness how is that possible when some of the movies that go to festivals that are probably ultimately unfortunately going to be seen by maybe a total of thousands of people and we do our part at no film school to try to make that a few thousand more i mean that's part of our mission but there's just sort of this disconnect between what is a festival movie, what is a made-for-TV movie, what is a movie, a theatrical movie, because people are sort of four-walling movies in theaters, and it's like, come on, this is not a theatrical movie. Like, you played in a theater, no one saw it there for a week. Means, yeah, four-walling means that you bought out a theater to play your movie, like a pay-to-play situation. Right. so that you could be eligible for certain things, you know? And my film is no different from these other movies, but something that went to a festival or that four-walled is therefore eligible for Spirit Awards or Gotham Awards or gets all these reviews. Wait, so do critics just not review Netflix films? Because they review Netflix like series, I guess, but those are TV critics. But those, Yeah, exactly. Those are the TV critics that are accustomed to that. Anyway, this, this could be part of a much longer discussion, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think it is interesting that we're at this particular point in time where ultimately I think what critics are reviewing is changing you know like the New York Times used to have a policy that they would review anything that played in the theater in New York for weeks and everyone was just buying out a theater for a week and then the New York Times had to go write these reviews of these films that probably no one was going to see in some cases and then the reviews weren't really even reviews they were like a one paragraph synopsis yeah and I was like this isn't a review Um, so I think it's all changing and uh, this film is certainly a part of that because yeah we have zero reviews but baffles my mind. I'm going to write one tonight. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you're a Rotten Tomatoes approved reviewer, though. I'm just rotten. Um, Anyway, so so one of the benefits of going to festivals, of course, that you that that you didn't mention other than the business stuff is that like you get to see the film like, you know, your film amateur is getting seen by more audiences than than ever probably would see it at a festival. But you can't watch it with them. So you did have some. Yeah. In real life. And that's actually I should I should say that because saying that there are zero reviews on Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes, it's easy to assume that therefore the film has not found an audience or that critics haven't reviewed it because they didn't think it was going to be seen. I will say that having had the conversation with Netflix, and we'll go into this later in the podcast as well, the movie is a global hit. They've been extremely happy with how it's done, and we've talked about it. It's been seen by millions of people all over the world in many, many languages. Like, it's really, really, really done well, especially for a film of its budget size. But you don't know that, you know, if you go to Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. So there is sort of a a, uh, dichotomy between what people are watching and what critics are reviewing, which is uh, interesting, and I think is particular to this exact moment in time that we are in with 
what is a movie and what's a festival movie and what's a TV movie and, and, and all of that. Totally. But you did have a couple real screenings that I think Netflix set up, right? Like by real, I mean in-person screenings that you attended with your cast. We were the one in New York. So does Netflix always set those up kind of just to gratify the filmmakers? And how does that work? And what was it like? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the size of your movie and what they see as the potential for the film. If you already played a festival, I don't think they do a screening at Netflix in Los Angeles because you've already had that experience, you know. Um, in our case, we did a reception at Netflix headquarters. They have a lovely office in Hollywood. It's brand new. They were not in that office when I pitched them the movie. And their lobby is incredible. And the screening room is incredible, as you'd imagine. They're Netflix. So we did a screening there. I believe it was Wednesday night before the movie came out. And that was great. I had so many family and friends there. And just a really valuable experience to sit there and watch the finished product with an audience and then to have the you know sort of reception after party and all of that and then we flew straight back to New York and we did one here in New York at the School of Visual Arts Theater which is a great theater and it was even more gratifying because that's a theater where Amateur my short film that I released on Vimeo had played as part of the NBC Universal Shortcuts Festival and it, it won the audience award there. So the last time I was up on stage in that theater was winning the audience award for the short that led to this feature ultimately getting made. So that felt like a full circle. How cool. As well. And that was a great screening. And, you know, um, it's a great theater. So to see it on the big screen was great because unlike a lot of, I think, again, first time indies, this movie does have cinematic action set pieces with using a lot of the tools in the cinematic toolbox in terms of energy of music and slow motion and and um you know action sequences so seeing it on the big screen with all of that and and was really important to me and and most importantly i felt was for michael rainey jr my lead actor whose first lead role this was to have it be in a really large theater where i could just tell him invite all of your friends because mm. he lives in staten island you know, yeah, it was him a great crowd. and his mother, like, bring all of your friends. Like, how many pluses do you need? You can bring them all. And then for him to get up on stage and get his round of applause, he's in every scene of the movie. He carries the film. It's his first lead role. Get the questions, you know. To do that was really important because in Los Angeles, you know, he's out here in New York. He wasn't able to do that. So that was that was a great experience. So I think a common misconception, especially for first-time filmmakers, is that, like, cool, you hand off your film to your distributor, like now it's, in, in your case, in Netflix's hands, bye, I'm making my next film. But actually, there's still stuff for you to be doing if you want the film to, to get traction. So um, either specific to Netflix or more generally speaking, what can filmmakers, what should filmmakers be thinking about as they're wrapping up post that, to sort of prepare for those next steps for getting it out into the world? I think whether it's a Netflix movie or not, the, the main things the world is going to see are the trailer and the key art, your poster, right? In the case of Netflix, it's a little bit different because the poster is not the thing that's going to be in movie theaters and they're going to create a whole lot of different versions of the artwork that, that surface the film on their service in addition, in addition to just the poster. But the trailer is is equally as important, if not more, because if you go into Netflix and the service and you're trying to make a decision about what you're going to watch, the trailer is right there. So, uh, yeah, we had a process where Netflix, just like many studios, will work with outside vendors. You know, trailer houses are places that cut trailers. That's all they do. And it's a very specific skill set. And then, you know, graphic artists who do posters for movies. And and I was involved in that process. And uh, Netflix was great. Those places were great. I was very glad not to be trying to cut this trailer myself after this incredibly long journey. And, and I'll just interject yeah. to say I, I highly recommend not cutting your own trailer. Like, do not cut your own trailer. You know, what people are interested in about your film is not necessarily what you're interested in about your film. And as Ryan said, trailer cutting is just its own art. And there are people who do it. And yeah. And there have been plenty of nightmare stories of, of filmmakers who weren't happy with a trailer and then did cut their own or, or, you know, whatever it may be. In this case, I thought that the trailer house really got the movie and, and nailed it. And so we went through a few versions, but they were like relatively small tweaks. And they sent over a bunch of poster versions. And I felt that there was one version that really got the movie. And so we went with that one. 
And I did a little bit of work on my own with coming up with the tagline that was on the poster because this, you know, when you're doing a basketball drama, it's very easy to get into kind of cliched territory. But then when the poster came out, I realized that apparently I thought the same thing as whoever was doing the marketing campaign for the uh, movie Wall Street, the original Okay. We have the same tagline. It's the same exact tagline? It's the same exact tagline. I had no idea. I, I pitched the tagline to Netflix. They said they liked it. They put it on the poster. And then someone on Twitter, uh, sorry, I'm forgetting who it, who it was. This is a, a few weeks ago, tweeted me the original Wall Street poster. And it's... Uh, oh, my God. So, folks, Google your tagline. <laughs> every dream has a price. That's... Uh, they couldn't it's be... It's appropriate for both. I was going to say, but they're such ways. different films. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Well, as you've pointed out before, even the title Amateur can give you some interesting results when you Google amateur movies. Well, so. and it was a 1994 Hal Hartley film also. Right. Again, very different movie. Anyway, if you're doing a one-word title, it's probably been used before. Yeah, that was a good movie. The first movie I saw at the Angelica Theater in New York uh, back then. That's a perfect Angelica film. Yeah. That's great. Anyhow, um, totally different from amateur, the Netflix original. <laughs> So, yeah, so you're preparing, I mean, there's there's these sort of visual assets that you'll also use. And, you know, it's a kind of a good segue to talk about press and social media because all those visual assets get sort of chopped up and used in different ways. Like when you're thinking about your poster and that kind of thing, remember that that same art has to sort of travel at different sizes and different um, shapes on Facebook and on Twitter and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And Netflix made, uh, they made, you know, a 30 second one by one Instagram version, you know, things like that so that we could share it with our talent and we could post it on the various networks. And actually, you know, the, the, the trailer, when they released it on YouTube, it, it did great. I mean, it had hundreds of thousands of views in the first 24 hours, but some of the most successful versions of that trailer were posted by our talent to their mm. service because they already have a, a, a built in you know, audience and Brian White, the actor that plays the father, had posted the the one by one, the square version, to Facebook, to his Facebook page. And I remember a friend of mine, Daniel Poneman, who's has a cameo in the movie, but was also our basketball casting scout, was telling me how well the trailer was doing. And I said, Yeah, it's got five hundred thousand views. And he says, No, it has three million. And oh I said, What are you God. talking about? And then I went to Facebook and Brian White's version it, you know, I, I've been off of social media for two years. I don't really know what, what these view counts are and if they're autoplay and if they're real. So I said, three million, that's amazing. But is that is that just like autoplay? Is that nothing? And Daniel said, no, look, it's been shared 50,000 times. Like 50,000 people have sent this to a friend, shared it to their page. Like that's a huge number and is an expression of demand for this movie that you shouldn't discount like that's you know and so i started scrolling through the comments and it was amazing because people are like hey uh you know i need i'm gonna need that network netflix password so i can watch this it's like well wow. why don't you subscribe to netflix right so, watch it. <laughs> so wh- wow i mean social media is so massive and you were lucky to have some big you know stars who are also social media users in your pool what are some other ways people should be expecting to sort of use their social media? Like, for example, did you use your at Ryan B. Koo account to mostly promote the film? Did you use an amateur-specific Twitter account? Are you using Facebook the most? Like, how are you capitalizing on it all? Yes to all of that. There is a Facebook page. There is a Twitter page. I pretty much ignored the Twitter amateur page because I didn't start it very early and I have a lot more followers at Ryan B. Koo and No Film School has a lot more followers. So, you know, those would be much more uh, effective ways of, of getting anything out there. I think because it's a Netflix movie, I wasn't nearly as beholden to really pushing it to try to move the needle for the number of viewers because we knew that the way Netflix works is they were going to be putting it on their global platform with 120 million subscribers in 190 countries, and that the film, with all of their algorithms and the, whatever goes on behind closed doors there, if people were watching and responding to the film, that it was going to spread to other people that the algorithm would identify as liking it, and that anything I could do with 15,000 Twitter followers was absolutely nothing compared to the millions of people who would watch the movie on the platform. So it was very different being a Netflix movie. I think we're 
as indie filmmakers accustomed to really scrapping for every individual view, if it's on Vimeo On Demand or some other platform, you know, even Amazon Video Direct, whatever it is. But for me, it was sort of like, this is just a way to engage with people and to have a conversation about it, but I don't need to, and I didn't do a particularly great job of prioritizing, you know, really trying to push it and spread it around. I would say I think it can be stressful for a lot of filmmakers to think like, oh, no, now I have to promote this thing. But we do have these amazing tools available that weren't available not that long ago. So maybe we'll do a separate episode, not of the first feature, but of one of the regular No Film School interview podcasts just about like how to capitalize on social media to to promote your film. Yeah, and if I think you don't if, have a Netflix. Film. Exactly. If, if this wasn't a Netflix movie, I almost certainly would have hired a social media person because you can't be everywhere at all times and there are a lot of tools out there that you want to be monitoring Mm -hmm. if somebody big out there has engaged with your movie or tweeted it you want to have some sort of notification set up you want to it's not just monitoring a keyword or being on there when you're on there yourself and for something like this being a netflix movie i mean people were tweeting about it every five minutes like it's not like i was seeing all of them right and there are other platforms like reddit are people talking about something relevant like basketball on reddit that you can like jump in on and you know promote there's so many ways right so what i did do in terms of setting up alerts where i'd be notified about things i did use google alerts and my tip there is to make sure you understand uh, the quotation marks so if you use quotation marks around ryan koo you're only getting notifications about Ryan Koo. If you don't use quotation marks, then you're getting notifications about any kind of article that involves the Ryan and the word Koo. And Ryan Coogler. <laughs> well, fortunately, no, fortunately, he spells it with a, a, a <laughs> C. Otherwise, I would just be like auto-completed away as a director. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, you want Ryan Koo? No, you want Ryan Coogler. Also, if the word amateur is in the title of your movie, you're definitely going to want to use quotes to make sure that you're not getting alerts about other kinds of amateur content on the internet. <laughs> But Mom. Uh, <laughs> I will say, in addition to Google Alerts, I used a service called Talkwalker Alerts. And they are sort of, I would say they cast a wider net. They've definitely notified me of things that Google didn't catch, but their like level of accuracy is lower. You know, So they'll be telling you about things that are not maybe about your movie, but they'll also catch some things that Google Alerts didn't catch. And I don't know why Google Alerts has been less prominent and reliable over the last few years. So I, I, I found that I did need to find an alternative or an additional way of finding out when people were talking about the movie out there. So Talkwalker was the one that I found. That's good to know. Um, so what about, I mean, you, know, you and I know a lot about the press side because we also happen to run you know, a press website that gives filmmakers shine. And I guess, I guess at Netflix you wouldn't have to do as much of your own press. But I'm still curious about, you know, what steps filmmakers should be thinking about in terms of press. And did Netflix kind of prep you in any way? Did they have a media person who, like, was telling you how to talk or when to talk to media or which media to talk to? They gave me a lot of freedom. They do have a originals PR team that would we strategize some sort of initial launch things. Like I did an ESPN podcast with our executive producer, Tony Parker, Tony and I did an interview with Sports Illustrated, which was both on the web and in print. And we talked about like when we're going to put the trailer out there and making sure that they had a different, uh, not only versions of the trailer, but also just key images that they could share for, for press outlets. I think normally as a movie, you are definitely going to want a publicist because if you're trying to do your public, your film publicity yourself, there's nothing more depressing, and I can flash back to releasing my short online, than being the person who's reaching out all the time because your hit rate's going to be really low. And there's going to be somebody who has a blog that like can't even write and misspelled something that you're just trying to get coverage from, and then they're going to ghost you and deny you. And it's just like it's a terrible feeling to have this thing that you work so hard on to be trying to get out there and to not be getting a response. So the whole point of a publicist is not only do they have a lot of contacts and know, have ideas and, and a whole rollout strategy, but when they are doing outreach and their hit rate is whatever it is, and they're getting rejected from some places, you're not the one facing that rejection. They are. They're just bringing you the opportunities and the interviews so that you don't have to be dealing with that while you're finally putting your your movie out. Like You want to have a, a filter and only have the, the opportunities come your way. In our case, we have the Originals PR team at Netflix, but also because Netflix is the largest brand in 
releasing movies and series now in the world, they have all this sort of uh, mechanisms of new on Netflix this month. And they, you know, they do sort of super cuts of trailers. They release press releases. They have a lot of different email uh, groups where it's either, you know, it's certain demographics, whether it's a, originals or they have a, a Twitter handle called Strong Black Lead. They have, you know, different kind of like ways to surface the content that people are paying attention to that there's already 15,000 people on this email list, you know, that kind of thing. So, so they were able to include this on those lists just as if it were, you know, Bright by Will Smith, like a much larger thing. So therefore, and it is just yeah. like Bright by Will Smith. So <laughs> The same movie. Um, but that's cool. So you were able to capitalize on like other Netflix momentum. They're not necessarily sending an email to every subscriber saying, hey, watch Amateur, but they're sending out newsletters that include Amateur, et cetera, et cetera. They did that too because, you know, it's coming out on a Friday. They have an originals newsletter and I'm sure just like with – Everything on Netflix, it's somewhat personalized, but the number of friends that I had forward me this email that as a Netflix subscriber that they got that said, you know, new for you, amateur, and it's just a dedicated email to this one movie is something that is a, is a game changer for a, a first time feature. They're not looking at it as, well, this movie had a much smaller budget, therefore we're not going to promote it in the same way as this other movie. It's like, if this movie goes on the service and people are responding to it and, and liking it and finishing it and engaging with it, it's going to be surfaced to more and more people. And that is an absolute game changer. In you could this just industry. never have the data to do that on your own. Like no independent could really do something that robust. So it's really cool. But I'm wondering like when they so they need assets for all these things like like stills um, that go with the film did you have to provide those did they decide what would be your key art and, and stills and stuff usually on a feature you have an uh, on-set photographer in our case it was william gray he's done a lot of movies because we were a netflix original they already had a list of assets that they wanted because they know what they're going to do for all the different versions of their key art but even if you're not a netflix movie you're Still as photographer, as part of the crew, whether they're there for certain days, whether they're there for the entire film, is going to be taking stills throughout, both in between takes and even during takes, because they get this really uh, heavy-duty case for the camera that completely subsumes the shutter sound. So the camera is in this much larger case. It's just, a, you know, it's a Canon DSLR or Nikon, whatever it is, but it makes no sound when they're taking the pictures so that they're actually getting images of the performances and the emotion that's happening. And then often, not only is that the kind of art you're going to use for different stills from the movie, but it's also what someone will use to make the poster. You know, they have all these assets that are delivered after the movie's done and you're not using frame grabs from the movie. You're using stills that your photographer took during production. Yeah, so if you don't have a publicist, or even if you're going to hire one, or even if you have a film on Netflix, at some point you're going to be responsible for some assets. And that's like one of these things on the list of like what to expect to prepare for for your release. And the more independent you are, the more those will fall on you. Um, and those are things like the, the stills. Um, and you know, the easier you can make your publicist job, the better. So if you provide them with several great stills, it's all, you know it's really going to help you. And you'll have you know your log line and maybe a director's statement depending on what you're doing, and um, you know other kinds of press kit assets that you'll kind of want to start thinking about as you know even as early as like while you're still in post. That's the other thing to be aware of is that if your journey was as long as mine, or even if it was much shorter, you were still, when you were researching the movie and when you were inspired to tell this story, by the time the movie's coming out, it's generally quite a bit later. So it's helpful to go review your talking points and your inspiration and to make sure that you're up on what your own personal story is because you're about to be, you're about to have a deluge of questions about these things and you want to have those talking points fresh. I mean, there are plenty of things about amateurism in this country and the history of college athletics and where it came from that were very fresh in my mind when I was shooting the movie. But then by the time we finished and locked picture and went through post and the movie was coming out, I had to go back and remind myself so that I could speak to those things knowledgeably when the film was coming out. That's such a great point, because if your film is dealing with some kind of issue in any way, whether it's really clearly like a social issue documentary or it's a narrative like Ryan's that has this thread of like a very contemporary thing that's in the news right now, 
people are going to ask you about that thing or to be a spokesperson on that thing, whether you want to be or not. So yeah, be prepared. So we talked about um, publicists and social media managers. Are there any other kind of crew or staff or people around you you might want to hire if there's some miracle by which you have a little extra cash at this stage? John Reese, the filmmaker and distribution expert, has espoused this title, Producer of Marketing and Distribution, or PMD, which could be also your social media person. I mean, there's a few different titles that you may want to hire. And certainly, if your distribution is going to be more DIY, if you're doing direct distribution, then yeah, you're absolutely going to need people on your team. But that would be one place to start, is to look at PMDs, and he has them on his his website to see people who've uh, been experienced at putting a movie out there in the world on the more DIY side of things. There's also maybe, you know, what comes to mind is like people that might just be able to do sort of like physical stuff that you don't have time to do, but that needs to be done. Like if you're really going DIY, a lot of DIY filmmakers, one of the only ways we make money is by um, setting up community screenings that are like 10 bucks ahead and you know they're set up all over the country and there used to be services that helped with this but they're sort of fading out like film sprout i don't know does it exist anymore there's another one too right there are a couple services so we'll look <laughs> it up um but i mean the point is you might want to just hire someone to sort of like do the manual labor of like calling all the you know organizations that deal with environmental issues in every state and asking if they want to do a screening of your environmental film or something you know there's ways to hire people that might be good investments because the time it would cost you is sort of balances out and, and worthwhile exactly and people who are in the who are connected in the target audience for your movie if it's specific you may have a film publicist, but they may not be connected in, in this case in basketball and in right. sports or if it's a social issue, it's a, if it's a documentary and there's certain uh, networks and organizations that you might want to target, you know, you want to find somebody who's already connected in this world so that you're not just out there sending cold outreach emails and not getting a response. In terms of what somebody could be looking at for distribution, because you mentioned some of the services that you know, help people arrange community screenings. And some of our own No Film School writers have had films like Christopher Boone and Oakley Anderson Moore and have used those. I would say there's some other resources besides nofilmschool.com to look at. Um, there's a website called thefilmcollaborative.org, which explores all of these things quite a bit. There's a ton of resources there. John Reese, who I mentioned, has some books, Think Outside the Box Office. And then they, those two entities actually did a book together called Selling Your Film Without Selling Your Soul. Um, Sundance has a creative distribution initiative, which has a newsletter, and they, they pick, they give a fellowship to a movie to go through this more direct distribution route, and then that movie shares what they learned along the way, including, in many cases, actual statistics about how much they made on this platform versus another, and what was a wise investment in terms of, we spent this much here, and then in return, we think that garnered us this, um... If your movie was at Sundance, they have hashtag artist services, which is for people who are looking for distribution that maybe didn't get acquired by Fox Searchlight or Neon or A24 at the festival. Amazon Video has their own program called Festival Stars, which I don't know, I think it's somewhat controversial. It's like kind of a set amount of money and then a share of, of the proceeds. But it's a great option if you haven't found another option for your movie and you want to put it out there. This is a guaranteed amount of money if you did play at one of these major festivals. And then there's Vimeo On Demand, where you can just directly release your movie. And then there's services like Quiver Digital, where if you want to get your movie direct to places like Vimeo, but also iTunes and Google Play and these other places, that it can help you uh, navigate the rights and to sort of... And distribute too, right? Distribute. Yep. Yeah. Quiver and... Is distribute Quiver now? I don't know. There oh. are multiple services. Check out both of those. Sorry, we should have researched this uh, part a little bit more, but we... Well, no, know. it's funny because I, I actually... My research is all a few years old because I was looking at all these things when I was trying to get this movie made and, and sort of planning out, like, what, what are we going to do at the end of the road? And then once we were financed by Netflix, I've just not paid attention to any of it. So that's why I'm, I'm wondering what has changed in that landscape since. But those are all the things that I know about. I just remembered one of the services that, that helps set up theatrical screenings for totally independent films that 
I think both Chris Boone, our writer, and Oakley Anderson Moore used for their films is called Tug, T-U-G-G. And uh, they have a whole online service that you can sign up for and check it out. Right. And it's not uh, just theaters. You can use non-traditional theatrical venues to get your movie out there to set up community screenings. And if people demand it, if you can raise a certain number of, of people who say they want to see it in a town, then they can set up a screening that you might not have otherwise known about at that opportunity. You might have an audience in some place that you weren't aware of, and, and that can be a great way to, to tour with your movie if you're not coming out simultaneously in 190 countries. It's a very different approach over here. So to depart a little bit from this part of the conversation, but to come full circle on your film, Early in the in this series of, of podcasts, you talked about your Kickstarter campaign, and I'm sure that some of the folks that contributed didn't necessarily expect it was going to be like five years later. Five years if they were lucky. But um, but what? So so now the film is out there, and you have to start fulfilling on top of everything else. You have to start fulfilling these Kickstarter orders. So what what's your process like, and how are you de- doing that, and what are you giving out? That's what's been fun about doing this podcast and talking about the whole journey is because it's an indie film, but it's a Netflix movie, you know, and and it's a Netflix feature, original film, but it's also a Kickstarter campaign from the very beginning. So it's kind of indie and DIY and not and studio at the same time. So we get to talk about all these different things. Yeah, the Kickstarter campaign, obviously for years, I didn't have much to talk about. I was issuing updates, but, but... just saying, yeah, so I, I did another draft of the screenplay. Kind of boring, you know? So it was exciting once the information was getting out there and I could share the cast with them and we could give them a release date and show them a trailer. But then, yeah, there's a lot of rewards to fulfill. And the way that I'd done the campaign at the beginning, I didn't have anybody attached. So I didn't have an assistant or somebody who was intimately familiar with the campaign and I felt like if I hired somebody I would have spent as much time showing them the ropes as I as I would have um, doing it myself so in terms of the Kickstarter rewards the good thing is that I had focused on digital rewards at the beginning of the journey so other than DVDs and Blu-rays everything else was digital right like a digital copy of the film a digital copy of the soundtrack digital copy of the script. Smart. Yeah, so I didn't want to be at the post office all the time. However, that is coming because for people who ordered a Blu-ray or DVD, at certain levels I offered the option of signed copy of it. And several years later I forgot about that. So we're still <laughs> dealing with that and I will be going to the post office a lot. But the good thing is that by offering them a digital download of the movie, that they got the movie when it came out, you know, as opposed to like, well, you're still waiting on this Blu-ray and DVD, but it's out on Netflix worldwide. It's like, no, you have the download of the film. And Netflix gave me permission to do that, which is great. So I didn't have to come back to the Kickstarter campaign and say, hey guys, remember how I said you were going to get this? Well, it turns out you're not. Like I'm able to deliver all the rewards that I originally promised seven years ago, even though it's taking some time on the Blu-ray and DVD. Are you saying side that you're going to train the No Film School staff to forge your signature? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just need you guys to be uh, stuffing envelopes. We'll have, a, oh. we'll, we'll have like a call-a-thon, you know. Totally, <laughs> totally. If there's pizza, I'm there. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we focused on the digital side. The one thing I did notice is that in order to deliver a file securely to people, that is several gigabytes large, a digital download of the movie. You know, I can't just say, hey guys, here's the Dropbox link. Please don't pirate it, right? I mean, there are certain security requirements and Netflix gave me permission, but I needed to be able to tell them like, yes, it's going to be secure. So I did spend some time looking around at ways to fulfill that because it's not, you know, I did promise a digital download of the movie, not like a stream via this, like something that you can save and keep with you and have it offline and all of that. So I ended up having to spend quite a bit of time looking around at different services. Like, how can I share a download of the movie to over 2,000 people securely with their own unique link and password and login? And so I ultimately ended up using this service called ShareFile, which is by Citrix. It's kind of an enterprise-level service. But other places that you might look at to help fulfill your Kickstarter rewards if you did do a crowdfunding campaign are places like WeTransfer, you send it. Is that maybe maybe they've even changed their name? Um, and uh, Backerkit is a site that helps if you have various other rewards. And you know, Kickstarter has 
I'm talking about Kickstarter because obviously they're the platform I use. They have on their own site now sections that do help point to other vendors, which you know back at the beginning of this journey, they hadn't built that out. So thankfully, we're able to deliver all the Kickstarter rewards. And if you're a Kickstarter backer, stay tuned. Your discs will be there shortly. But you Woo-hoo. already have the download. So that's that's the first stop. It's actually funny this comes up because I was at a Film Fatales meeting earlier this week and a woman, a filmmaker, was talking about how she's now fulfilling her her Kickstarter. And when you first did yours, it was a time when, you know, DVD players were much more common. So it makes sense that you offered it. She offered a DVD just like, I don't know, as like she just thought, oh, well, she'll offer it. But she even put in something like in the description saying like, but to be environmentally friendly, we're trying to limit these. So only only choose one if you really want it. And she thought no one would because she sort of guilted them into, you know, not. But folks, people still want the DVDs. Apparently, she's sending out a lot more than she thought. And so just be wary if you're thinking about offering that. As a reward, you might actually have to deliver. Definitely. And, of course, whatever your backer level, you know, you're going to have the, the credit card percentage and the Kickstarter or whatever the platform percentage they take. And then the amount that it takes to actually burn the disc and then the amount that it takes to ship the disc. So you have to reserve some of your Kickstarter funds for the fulfillment of these rewards and and to be aware of that. I actually did the same thing. When I sent the, the backer survey, once the movie was done, I said, hey, I give people an option of saying like, I don't even have a DVD player anymore, you know, because I backed this thing in 2011. So I gave them the option of saying, yeah, we don't want the disc. Like, I'll give you the disc. I'm giving you the download in addition. But if you don't want the disc, let me know so that I'm not shipping you something that you turn into a drink coaster immediately. Did you, like, what was the percentage? Like, did most people want them? Oh, I don't know. I don't have the percentage breakdown. I just know I've got a lot of discs to ship. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, I mean, here we are, like we've come full circle. It's unbelievable. Uh, and you and I talked on this podcast, basically the day after your New York screening, as I say, now it's a couple weeks out or a month or so out. Um, how are you feeling and how's the film been received? It's been amazing. It's been, you know, I think it's, it's like, I think all filmmakers feel every emotion in this process. It's like if, you know. If you gave birth to a baby, I'm sure there's euphoria, but there's also like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, what do I have the money for this? Like, what's my life? You know, there's like all sorts of emotions that that go with it. And um, releasing a movie is obviously very different than releasing a human being, but um, but there are <laughs> but there are but there are parallels, and because you worked on this thing for so long, and the gestation period was many times longer for the film. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm incredibly proud of the movie. Um, the reception from the general public and the target audience has been amazingly inspiring. I mean, just to be on Twitter and searching and seeing what people are saying um, has been incredible because I think part of everyone's fear is that no one's going to see your movie and no one's going to care, right? Like apathy would be the worst outcome. And also, I was off of social media for two years. So it's been somewhat unique to come back just for the release of this movie and then to see all the activity out there um, has been, I mean, yeah, again, it's like every emotion. But the movie has been a hit for Netflix. It's been incredibly popular. And it's been talked about on social media a lot. One of the things that's been interesting coming back to social media has been to see how the algorithms work and obviously we're living in a very particular age where during a time that I was off of social media, uh, I think many of us came to feel very differently about it based on uh, the election and based on Russians you know, hacking uh, social media platforms to influence the election. So one of the things I've seen is that it's been interesting to, to watch because I would say that if I just go on Twitter and search for the movie, the vast majority of comments are positive and people have said that it's their favorite movie on Netflix. It's an 11 out of 10, you know, that, that they were moved to tears at the end and, and all the sort of things that you're hoping to hear. That's awesome. Including like, Hey, NCAA, this movie's coming for you, you know, <laughs> which Ooh. is, which is great. Cause it's, it's nice to see other people get the movie and respond to it strongly emotionally. And it's people across the board, you know, it's not just basketball 
it's not just young basketball fans, uh, including, you know, parents have talked about how their kids have watched it several times and they've uh, discussed it among them. And the other day I, I was at a meeting at Netflix and we, we looked at the, uh, we're talking about the rating of the film because it's TVMA, but we're also like, well, it's TVMA because of the language, but it's not really, you know, like you could watch it with your kid because the language that you see in this movie is the language you're going to see at a basketball game. So Common Sense Media gave it a four out of five and said, you know, that it brings up all these issues to discuss with your your kid who's if your kid is interested in athletics and all that. So there have been so many great things that have happened. But what I've noticed is I saw a New York Times article recently that said talked about uh, it said countries are tinderboxes and Facebook is the match. And it's that they were talking in the context of violence being carried out based off of accusations that weren't necessarily even true, but that were spread around via social media. Which is why the Russian hacking is so dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. So what's been interesting is to go on these platforms where the vast majority of feedback is positive, but to see that, you know, it is social media. So of course it's either an 11 out of 10 in the greatest movie ever made, or, or it's the worst. Negative 11 it's out the, of 10. Exactly. It's the worst dumpster fire that has ever been perpetrated on humanity, you know. <laughs> So <laughs> I would say the truth is somewhere in between. <laughs> but it's been interesting to see that the most negative of opinions receive, even though it's only, you know, if there's 30 tweets about it, 25 are positive and five are negative. But the really negative ones do get amplification and retweets in a way that has been really interesting for me to come back to social media to see. Because it's like it's the minority of opinion, but because you're stating it in a certain way that people jump on it they poison the well and i'm you know ultimately totally fine with that that's great because i think the worst thing that you can encounter as a filmmaker is that people don't finish watching your movie there's a million other things to watch and they don't tweet about it right it's like an ap- apathetic approach i made a very particular movie with a very particular ending that's saying something very specific and if you have an expectation of the sports movie genre and some people have never seen a sports movie that was less than $40 million and uh, or have never seen an indie film at all, people who are going to be watching this movie. Right. They're like, wait, what? the camera's shaky. What is that? Like, I just watched mm-hmm. The Avengers, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm expecting this to be like a studio movie. But the ending has been divisive, and that's great. That's good, yeah. It's great, but that's the whole point of an ending is that if you had two people who go see it at the theater that they walk out and they felt about it differently, they felt differently than each other and that they discuss it, and that's exactly what has been ha- what has happened on social media is that some people really, really, really hate the ending, and other people were re- were moved to tears by it. Mm. The other thing that's happened is people thought it was a series because it's on Netflix, and oh. they don't necessarily know that it's a movie. So they're like, "Where's what? That's the end. This just stops. Like, where's the sequel? This would have been episode. better. This wouldn't have been better as a series. Yeah, but maybe it was just the, you know the the ninety minute pilot. I'd like to see the series. So Netflix, that's what people have said. So that's that, so that's what's been great too is to see people you know engaging with the ending in any direction, feeling strongly about it, and then requesting either a series or a sequel and all of that. And that's been great because you know it's not. These aren't my friends. They're not, you know, these aren't people I know. It's seeing the general public uh, respond in a way that has been really inspiring. And this is the beginning of your career, in a way, of this part of your career. So that's good momentum to have. Now, you know, we've got all the social media feedback as one way to gauge success of the film. And you mentioned earlier that Netflix has told you, hey, this is doing really well. People are watching it. But... Do you have any more visibility into the the statistics or the audience numbers? Or do you know anything actually from Netflix about numbers? Right. I mean, Netflix is sort of, uh, they're known that the data they have is their proprietary advantage over their competitors. So we don't have the equivalent of box office numbers, right, that people are accustomed to, to viewing. So they do tell you as the filmmaker, they tell you some things. You can't necessarily tell other people those things, but they can tell you anecdotally how it's doing, if they're happy with it, what which countries it's doing well in, if people are responding to it, if they're finishing it. Like they'll give you all sorts of things, and, and the news has been all great. And and there's you know there's sort of like the 
the check-in of how it did in its first week, and then you follow up later to see how it's doing over time because the platform will get to know the movie better and what kinds of people will like it and surface it over time. So your movie does have a much longer life as opposed to the normal movie method of releasing it, which is really trying to do a whole lot of advanced PR so that your first opening weekend is really big, and that's an in- indicator of how it's going to do over the life on other platforms, et cetera, et cetera. With Netflix, it starts there, and it accelerates, and then it keeps identifying more and more audiences for the movie, which is really exciting. They're like counting on the long tail. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, it's such a different model, but it's nice that it could be like gratifying for you over time instead of just that one big boom, and then it goes potentially nowhere. Right. And it's on Netflix, so it's easy to find. It's not like, oh, can you watch my movie? It'll be at this theater in three weeks and then we'll be screening it here. It's like it's out there. Anyone can watch it. That's very helpful to you and your filmmaking career if you're taking meetings afterwards that you can then just, you know, tell people where to find it and and they'll watch it. One of the other things you can do is just get a sense anecdotally of how many people are watching the movie because people rate them on IMDb and these other platforms and you can see the number of people who have rated it is indicative of a lot of people who have seen this film, especially when you consider that this movie's core target audience is not the default audience of people who go to IMDb and rate movies. And IMDb has a weighted rating that they don't tell you about, but they give you age breakdowns and all sorts of things. And I don't know how they calculate the average, but it's not the movie that I, you know, I didn't make this movie for film critics or independent film fans, which is kind of funny, you know, being the No Film School founder. Like, I didn't make this movie for the audience of, of independent filmmakers. I made it for the general public and for sports fans and basketball fans. And that's a much larger audience, but it's also not an audience that's going to go on to Letterboxd or IMDb and give you the highest average rating because the the majority of your audience is located elsewhere. But you can see even on these platforms that uh, there are thousands of ratings and that people are watching this thing, and that's what that's what you want. So you're still kind of in the thick of these first couple months of release, but at some point, probably soon, you're going to be ready to fully move on. You've probably got a lot of irons in the fire, but like at what point do you really say, okay, you know, really wrapping things up with amateur time to fully jump into whatever project is next? Yeah, obviously you have the the press activity, the flurry of that around the movie coming out. And initially you're going to devote yourself entirely to making yourself available for every Q&A and to do every interview and to make sure the movie's being talked about in the right circles. I think it's kind of organic in terms of when you know you've done your duty and that you can move on. For me, it was sort of that this first month was really a lot of madness around that. But then on a film, you've been getting the question, what's next already? You know, like Mm -hmm. the the day we locked picture, I think I had dinner with the producer and he said, what's next? I'm like, I've still got a year of work to do. You know, it's one of the things that everyone says to filmmakers is you should be working on the next thing and you should have it ready to go. But your first feature is so all consuming and you're going to be judged on that for the rest of your career. And the opportunities that are going to come your way are going to depend entirely on that. So of course you want to fully devote yourself to seeing this movie through to the finish line. And then I think you need to know how the world sees your movie and how the film world sees you to really know what you want to do next because there are going to be inspiring surprises where it did better than you thought. There are going to be disappointments where you it didn't do as well as you thought. You're going to have all sorts of information coming your way that is a judgment of you and your work and so for you to really know what you want to do next, it's I think it's you kind of have to finish the process of putting it out. I mean, if you have four scripts out there ready to go when you finish your first movie, then by all means, you know, pursue all of them. But I think in terms of which direction you want to go, that could be several different ways. And to see the perception of the movie and of you really helps you to plan out the roadmap because it's your first feature. It's not the end, it's the beginning. And I would say that the most valuable thing about the entire process is it's an incomparable learning experience. I learned more in the years of making this movie than I did in the rest of my life combined. 
And that's what prepares you so well to go on to future projects is the only way to learn how to make a feature is to make a feature. So in terms of what's next, this movie is a great entree into the industry for me, where I was primarily known as the no film school guy, not a filmmaker. You know, I'd done a web series, I'd done a short, but this website was my thing. Now with the Netflix original film that's out there worldwide, that's been really successful, all sorts of doors open. And that's what's exciting is jumping into a situation where I'm not working on one movie that I did a Kickstarter campaign for years ago that I will do anything to get to the finish line. It's working on several things at once. Now you're telling stories. It's not being beholden to one topic. And Lord knows I love basketball, but it's a great big world out there. And there's a lot of fascinating and terrible and scary <laughs> and, you know, all manner of things are happening in the world right now. And I can't wait to engage with those. There's no shortage of stories. So you're not going to give us one hint. Come on, Ryan, something. Well, I will say as the CTO, COO, CEO, whatever it is, I have at no film school. Obviously, I built a website in the world of the Internet from scratch. And I arguably know not arguably, I definitely know more about the internet and technology than I do about basketball. And they say, write what you know. Ooh. I spent two years away from social media during a very particular time, and then I came back during a very particular time. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we all have questions about what this is doing to us and where the world is going and what it does to our relationships. And it's just a really fertile ground to explore in, in the technology and in the sci-fi world. And it's something that I'm, I'm qualified to do. So that's certainly something I'm working on that's not, uh, not basketball related. Color me intrigued, Ryan Koo. Um, so now we have really, you know, again, this is the ninth episode of this podcast. We've started with how do you come up with an idea for a film all the way through this film is in the world and we're pushing it out there. Do you have, uh, and of course, as, as you mentioned earlier, our next episode is going to be all about answering other people's questions that may have come up from listening to this podcast or just that they're wrestling with in their own first feature. So before we get there, do you have any just last wise words for this sort of part of the podcast of like, okay, I made this film. It's out there. Here's the, here's the real wisdom I have to impart. There's no substitute for learning than to, to make a first feature. And it doesn't, I think everybody wants their first feature to be this incredible success story and to get a, a budget, get a Netflix deal, whatever it is that allows you to, to do it at a certain scale. But I think whatever you can do to get it made, if you view it as a learning experience, it's going to be valuable no matter how the product turns out. You, you can't worry about the external validation or what happens with it or what it's going to do for your career or your personal life. You have to view it as the internal journey of what you're going to learn from doing it and to really just go engage and find any way to get this experience because you're going to learn so much as a storyteller and there's no substitute for taking something from script to the screen, soup to nuts, everything that we're covering on this podcast for you to learn how to do it and who you are. And that's going to inform the rest of your career. So, I mean, it took me seven years. I would recommend others don't take that long, <laughs> but however long it takes you, it's absolutely the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. And I would recommend if you have any inkling that you want to be a filmmaker, find a way to take this journey, no matter the scale. That makes me want to run out and go make something. It's, it's high time, too. Um, wow. Well, I don't think uh, I'm going to be on the next episode. I think you're going to do it with Eric Lures from No Film School. So so I would love to take this chance to thank you for spending all the time to do these episodes and share this, you know, really incredible knowledge with people. And, uh, and to thank you all for sticking with us through all these episodes. Yeah, if you're still listening, thank you for your, your patience. I hope I hope this is instructive. I mean, I, I hadn't heard anyone else do it, but uh, obviously we have access to me on my own site. So, so uh, this is the first feature, first podcast 
series. Maybe we'll do another one one day with somebody else. I think it'd be super cool. And in the meantime, of course, we have lots of other No Film School podcasts. We're coming up with new ones every week. Interviews on Monday, the Indie Film Weekly News Show on Thursdays. And you can get the next episode of The First Feature and those other shows by looking for the No Film School podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find them. And that's it. One more to go. Woo! And stay in touch. We're all at nofilmschool.com. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Ryan B. Koo. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>